0: Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Bone Up, the podcast all about bones, how we make them, why we break them, and if we fully understand them. I'm David Armstrong.
1: Hi, and I'm Richie Abel. And over this series, we're going to be exploring osteoporosis, bones, what we know, and what we're yet to discover. And we hope you will join us on the journey.
0: So, for anyone keen to learn more about our infrastructure of calcified collagen, This is Bone Up.
1: That's such a brilliant phrase.
0: Well, uh, yes, I was, try- I was trying to, to get something other than bone, so I thought Infrastructure of Calcified College, and that, that'll, that'll cover it. <laughs> okay, so we've got a jingle. Well, hello.
1: Hi, David. Uh, it's great to get started on the pod.
0: It is, it is. So uh, welcome, welcome to you, welcome to everyone to the UK's first podcast on osteoporosis and bones. Over the series, we will be hearing from a whole range of hopefully well-informed individuals about fragile bones from patients to scientists, in the hope of learning more about osteoporosis. And I have to point out, Richie, the first time that we met, in fact, maybe the first thing you ever said to me was, I don't believe in osteoporosis. And yet here you are uh, hosting an osteoporosis podcast.
1: I do remember saying that. Uh, It was at the osteoporosis leadership training program and i remember we were in a room with a a whole bunch of other clinicians and the hosts of the program asked what people thought about osteoporosis and if they put themselves in osteoporosis shoes how would they feel and i think i said i would feel insecure because people are about to realize that osteoporosis doesn't exist (laughs) and i still remember i still remember the looks i got in the room Everybody was in a sort of shocked, stunned silence at how the Osteoporosis Society had managed to recruit somebody that didn't believe in osteoporosis.
0: Yes, I do. I, I, I remember it well. But yet you have moved, have you, from your agnostic stance?
1: I suppose so, yes. I think one of the nice things about coming together with lots of clinicians and, and talking about bone health and bone aging and and bone disease, is that I have slowly come to realize there's lots of different opinions about osteoporosis. And I see that maybe there is a wider condition, bone fragility, and that osteoporosis is part of that. It's one of the things that contributes to fragility, but there's probably a lot more to learn about. And that osteoporosis is a very useful concept, as long as we use it correctly and I hope that one of the things we can do today to get this podcast started out is to sort of look at the consensus and and give everybody a background to bone fragility and osteoporosis so we can all get started together. So when we did the leadership course together David one of the things that they taught us was that you should start building a consensus when you begin working with other people and it would be really nice if we could start building a consensus here because i'm sure a lot of the people listening have heard stuff about bone disease before yeah and we all we need to get everybody on the same page so i suppose the first and most obvious question is what is osteoporosis
0: well the the orthodox answer to that is to go straight to the world health organization and the world well world health organization fortunately have given us a definition now their definition involves having a test done called a bone density scan, and if you produce a result on that of 2.5 standard deviations uh, below a set marker, then you have osteoporosis. And
1: what does that what does that test actually measure?
0: The test measures bone mineral density. It essentially measures how, how dense your bone tissue is, or if you want to be really simple, just how, how much bone tissue you have. Uh, the test involves exposing your bone to a, a set amount of radiation. The more bone you have, the more it will be absorbed. The less bone you have, the less is absorbed. And we can then measure that and get a, quite a clear and accurate view of how dense your bone is in a number of different areas of the body.
1: And there seems to be a related term, which I I see used quite often, which is osteopenia. What is osteopenia?
0: Yeah, osteopenia. Some people come to me and say they've had a diagnosis of osteopenia. And and the pedants among us, and and you will know that I am very pedantic about this sort of thing, will say that osteopenia is not a diagnosis. Osteopenia is the description of an area on a graph. Um, Essentially, when you get the result of your DEXA scan, you get is what is called a T-score, and your T-score is usually negative because your bone density is compared against what's considered the peak bone density for human beings, aged about 25. And we measure this in how many standard deviations below that you are. So, as I said earlier, if you're two and a half standard deviations, in other words, if you're quite a bit below average peak bone density, then we say you have a T-score of less than minus 2.5 and you have osteoporosis there is this sort of this sort of yellow area in between the red and the green which we call osteopenia which means you have a t-score of less than minus one but not yet less than minus 2.5 and it's sometimes described as people who have a slightly increased risk of having a fracture but in reality it's hard to define
1: So if you suspect somebody of having osteoporosis or low bone mineral density, give them a DEXA scan. And osteopenia is slightly low bone mineral density and osteoporosis is very low bone mineral density. Uh,
0: That's That's true. Yes, I think in lay terms, that's a fair description.
1: Does everybody who fracture have osteoporosis?
0: No, they certainly don't, although you could say it depends how you define osteoporosis. Um, But certainly, according to the World Health Organization definition that we've just discussed, then no, lots of people fracture with bone mineral density greater than minus 2.5. In fact, at a population level, the majority of people who suffer, for example, hip fracture, actually have bone mineral density In the osteopenic range rather than in the range of osteoporosis. It's just that there are many more people within that range.
1: So what are the other risk factors then that might also be contributing to the fractures?
0: Well that's interesting because there are other what we call independent risk factors. So if your bone density machine is broken for the afternoon and you come to my clinic and say What are the chances of me breaking a bone? There are questions I can ask you that will help make that decision. So for example if your mum or dad have fractured their hip during their lifetime then you're substantially more likely to break your hip. So I can divide the population into those who have a parental history and those who don't and that gives us a good idea or a good way of dividing up your risk and in fact there's quite a long list of what we would call independent risk factors.
1: And is there a way that you can record all of these for your patients?
0: Yeah, you you, you can go through them. And in fact, people have done this. And uh, as you know, our colleagues in, in Sheffield University have done this and produced an algorithm, which is just a, a complicated calculation called the FRAX score. And the FRAX score basically takes uh, all those independent risk factors, such as uh, smoking tobacco, taking excessive alcohol, taking glucocorticoids, having diabetes, having an early menopause and a long list of other independent risk factors and puts them together and essentially divides people up into those who have lots of independent risk factors and those who have few and can give people uh, an estimate of their 10 year risk of actually having a fracture without even doing a DEXA scan.
1: For the DEXA earlier, you mentioned there was kind of a grey area where pe- people who have very low bone mineral density are perhaps more likely to fracture, but still people who have only slightly low bone mineral density, osteopenia, might still fracture. Does the use of FRAX improve your ability to work out which of your patients might fracture?
0: Absolutely. I mean, and that's one of the reasons that we we use it at the clinic. Um, and uh, you can... It, Uh, FRAX gathers up the independent risk factors, but then you can also do a DEXA scan and you can put the bone mineral density from the DEXA scan into that calculation and you can get an even better uh, or even more accurate uh, figure for the risk of the patient uh, in front of you suffering either a hip fracture or any sort of fracture. Although it still must be said it's not perfect and we do see people with relatively low frac scores who still go on to break bones and we see people with high frac scores who don't break bones and therefore we know we're still very much um, in the foothills of understanding why people suffer fragility fractures
1: so how do you decide which of your patients are going to get treatments for fragility
0: well, we, we use both the FRAX and the DEXA. Um, there are certain groups of people who almost without doing any other estimation, we feel do need treatment. So, for example, if you're over the age of 75 and suffer a hip fracture, almost by definition, you have fragile bones. And therefore, that's a sort of patient I would would be very quick to consider. So, David,
1: from the description you're giving us, there seems to be several ways in which you can assess a patient's bone health, either using a DEXA scan or using the FRAX questionnaire or perhaps the FRAX and DEXA together, as you've described. How do you decide which of your patients need treatment?
0: That seems a simple question, but it actually gets to the very heart of what we're talking about, ultimately what i want to do is reduce your risk of having a further fracture and therefore i want to decide which of my patients will get benefit from the intervention i give them uh, in terms of making it less likely they will break something again so for example if i see someone in their in their 80s or 90s who has suffered a hip fracture then almost without any assessment without a dexa scan or without frax I know that they have fragile bones and they will undoubtedly benefit from treatment on those fragile bones. So there are some people who will benefit from treatment almost without without any formal assessment. For most people, however, a DEXA scan and a FRAX helps us choose between those who will definitely get a, a risk reduction in terms of further fracture and those who won't. But really underneath that answer, is, is, is the wide variety of treatments, because not all treatments are, are pharmaceutical treatments. Some treatments involve alterations in, in lifestyle or habits or, or, or diet as well. So when you ask me to choose a treatment, what I tend to think of is more general management of patients. And of course, this is a long term condition. So management is also a good word because it refers to trying to improve someone's bone health over a long period of time.
1: That's really interesting. Um, I've, I've actually been quite shocked, you know, coming in to do medical research about how much doctors have to think when they're treating their patients. No two people are the same. Everyone's an individual. There seems to be so much for doctors to consider about their patients. And I hope some of the Imperial Medical students might tune into this podcast and that's a good lesson for them as well so let's get let's get back to the treatments then i'm sure the people who are listening to the podcast have through some way found out they have osteoporosis either they've had the dexa or frax or maybe they suffered a fracture and through one of those routes they've been offered treatments what kind of treatments do you give to your patients and why
0: okay I think there's a a little basic science required here, and this is something that I always explain to patients because I think if you understand how treatments work, then you're more likely to take them and use them and benefit from them. There are two teams of cells within your bones. There are cells called osteoblasts, which build bone, and cells called osteoclasts, which remove bone, and they take part in what you might call a bone turnover cycle. And most treatments we have either increase bone building or reduce bone removal and as a result you get a net gain in bone mineral density. For most people they have osteoporosis because they have excessive bone loss and therefore most of our treatments are aimed at reducing bone loss. Again I sometimes explain to people this is like filling up the bath with water and we can either block the plug hole or turn on the tap to run water in more quickly and most of the treatments that we have are ways of blocking up the plug hole and therefore the water fills up in the bath so the standard treatment or the treatment that most people will be offered at some point are treatments called bisphosphonates. Bisphosphonates are usually taken as tablets once a week or sometimes once a month although if you have problems with with your gastrointestinal tract, you can get them as an infusion uh, once a year. Bisphosphonates adhere to the surface of bone and they interfere with how the osteoclasts, the bone removal cells, work and they reduce the risk, sorry, they reduce the rate at which you lose bone. They block up the plug hole essentially and therefore the 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 density of your bone the density of the bone mineral tissue uh, gradually increases over a period of time and they would form the mainstay of our treatment for osteoporosis
1: and what about the less invasive treatments i've heard about like uh calcium supplements vitamin d
0: yeah I, i maybe sort of jumped ahead to the to the to the pharmaceutical treatments um for many people, then we, we start off with lifestyle. In fact, for all patients, we start off with with lifestyle uh, and diet. Calcium and vitamin D are, are essential. Uh, bone tissue is made up of, as you know, collagen and calcium crystals. Um, and it's essential to have a good calcium intake in the diet. And this is something we always ask patients. Most patients have reasonable calcium intake, but you do encounter people fairly frequently. We have very poor calcium intake over many many years and although opinions differ a little on this there is no doubt that if you have taken practically no calcium in your diet for 30 or 40 years then your bones are going to suffer as a result of that and either you need to increase calcium in the diet or you need to take a calcium supplement there is very good evidence however that taking a calcium supplement by itself doesn't help you need to take vitamin D along with that. And vitamin D is best thought of as a sort of passport to get calcium from where it is now, closer to where you want it to be, and that is in the bones. So for example, vitamin D helps you uh, get calcium from the stomach into the bloodstream, helps absorb calcium into the bloodstream. It reduces calcium loss in the kidneys, and it encourages calcium to move from the blood into the bones. So again, when I explain this to patients, I often explain vitamin D is like is like a passport. It gets calcium more quickly to where it wants to be. There is good evidence that low vitamin D levels over a long period of time tend to be bad for bones as well. So again, this all comes to the general assessment of the patient. If I find someone who has a very poor calcium intake for years, who's severely deficient in vitamin D and who maybe is a heavy smoker, I know from research that i can actually improve their bone mineral density and reduce their risk of fracture by altering those lifestyle changes and particularly for younger patients that's something that i would i would consider doing maybe before reaching for the prescription pad however in some patients either their frax predicted score is so high or their bone mineral density is so low or they're an older patient and really uh, making big changes to lifestyle at this stage are, are going to be difficult. Then you would move more towards the, the pharmaceutical uh, end of the of, of the treatments.
1: So all in all, then the pattern you seem to be describing is that for people who are diagnosed with fragility, you can prescribe lifestyle treatments. You can prescribe exercise, you can prescribe supplements. And for maybe the people with more severe fragility, you can move on to the pharmaceutical options, the medicines like bisphosphonates. One thing that struck me there was where you talked about younger patients. And it occurred to me one thing we haven't really thought about yet so far is what type of people suffer from osteoporosis?
0: What kind of age range are we talking about? The honest answer to that is that the majority of people are older and that the majority of people are are older females, that is, after the menopause. Because while in clinics and while in research and while in, in the sort of learned journals, uh, we, we often discuss rare cases, the overwhelming majority of osteoporosis is postmenopausal osteoporosis. Nevertheless, there are other large and important groups of people who also have low bone mineral density. The first group that springs to mind, certainly from a doctor's point of view, are people who take steroids, glucocorticoids in the long term. That could be for, for chest disease such as asthma. It could be for conditions such as arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease. And glucocorticoids, they're bad for your bones in many ways, but they certainly encourage bone loss. They encourage the cells that remove bone and they form a big group of patients who have low bone mineral density, but who aren't postmenopausal females. Um, there are other groups of, of patients for who, who have low, uh, low bone mineral density. Um, in the youngest age group, patients I often get referred to the clinic are those with eating disorders. Um, it's sometimes believed that's purely because they, they don't take enough calcium or vitamin D in the diet. But in fact, that's a multifactorial problem um, and having low weight is a big contributor to osteoporosis. Weight bearing exercise is an important management tool or lifestyle change that you can make to encourage uh, your bones to get stronger and you find that if patients are very underweight uh, then they often have, have lower bone mineral density. The other issue with, uh, with eating disorders is that it often affects the menstrual cycle and oestrogen levels fall and so if I see someone who's 21 who maybe suffers from an eating disorder and has very low bone mineral density the density you might expect from a 70 or 80 year old I wouldn't necessarily reach for the same drugs as I would for someone in in, in an older age group because there are so many other lifestyle things that can be changed and often just restoring a normal menstrual cycle uh, is is very important for that that group of, of patient.
1: So what's coming across here is that bone fragility is a very, very complex condition. And if the people listening go on Google and Google osteoporosis or bone fragility, what they'll probably see is some document that says, well, osteoporosis is a loss of bone mineral density, perhaps a loss of bone mass that happens when you get older. But actually, there's a lot more to it than that. Yes, older postmenopausal women and maybe much older men are at higher risk because of loss of bone mineral density. But we have to think about how people's lifestyles affect their bone, perhaps especially when they're very young. Treatments that people are receiving, you mentioned glucocorticoids, lots of cancer therapies for breast cancer and prostate cancer can also cause bone mineral density to drop. This is a much more sophisticated disease than you often hear or see about
0: it, it is and while we have talked primarily about bone mineral density and that's something which we know about and which is easy to measure there are other factors and i know this is something you've been involved in um, there are other things we can measure about bones which may well predict who fractures and who doesn't aside from just how much bone tissue you have. And I think that's that's looking at, at the quality of the bone.
1: Yeah, I think that on the whole, certainly in the perception of the public and in a lot of professionals, the view is that osteoporosis, bone fragility, whatever we're going to call it, is something caused by loss of bone mass and bone mineral density but there's probably a lot more to it than that you mentioned earlier on that a lot of people who fracture have osteopenia and not osteoporosis which is only slightly low bone mineral density as opposed to very low bone mineral density which begs the question why would people fracture when they have osteopenia And for the last decade or so, a lot of scientists and a lot of clinicians have been talking about a concept called bone quality, which is all about the quality of the material. And maybe it doesn't matter if you don't have very much bone. If that bone is of a very high quality, I suppose an example you might give is concrete cancer. If you build a very sturdy looking building out of very poor concrete, it's going to collapse. And if you build a very narrow looking building out of very good concrete it's going to stay up and a lot of the research that's going on in bone at the minute is to try and isolate what what this bone quality really is what aspects of bone material also contribute to the strength or also contribute to the fragility and it could open up whole new ways of diagnosing the disease and also treating it
0: I, I think that's I think that's very true. I mean, as a Welsh rugby supporter, you will know that fourteen men playing well can uh, can play just as well as as fifteen men not playing not playing quite so well. And indeed that that's you know <laughs> joking aside that that's a reasonable analogy. You know you can have lots of players of reasonable quality. You can have a small number of players of 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 very good quality. And certainly when we're at the clinic and when we're talking to patients and thinking about things, we're simply thinking about the number of players you have in your team. And we're good at increasing the number of players you have in your team, but we're not that really, we're not really that good at measuring or certainly in the clinic at measuring how, what the quality of the bone is like. And we don't really know how to increase the quality of that bone, certainly in terms of pharmacology.
1: I, I really like your analogy there. I hope, I hope England have a player sent off as well, because it, <laughs> it seems that Welsh be, can yeah, win that It way. seems
0: to be the Welsh boy we'll solution to things, yeah. I,
1: I, I do really like your analogies. I love the analogy about, about vitamin D being like a passport. It sounds yeah, much more like... I think like that a, is
0: an original. I think that is one of mine, I have to say, but it is. It gets, you know, vitamin D gets from your mouth into your bone, and every time it reaches a barrier... Like the gut or the kidney or something. The passport vitamin D says, "Come on ahead, calcium." You know.
1: I I sort of feel like vitamin D is more like an EU passport than a UK passport.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we want to we want to avoid controversy. Yeah. Yeah, calcium gets to to the Irish seaboard or in the west of Scotland and just can't get over to Northern Ireland.
1: <laughs> yeah. So so a lot of my research is about trying to identify those properties and I hope that in some of the other podcasts as we as we move through the topic of bone fragility we can break down a little bit more you know why people fracture what are the risk factors how does osteoporosis i.e low bone mineral density contribute to this wider idea of bone fragility what else is going wrong you know you mentioned right at the beginning of the podcast that bone is collagen and mineral and one of the things that strikes me me is that in all the things we've been talking about today with the diagnostics like dexa for example imaging the bone to measure the bone mineral density i kind of feel you're only getting half the story you know if you're missing out the collagen as well there's a lot more there and i know there's some groups in the uk and around the world who are doing things to look at the collagen etc as well so hopefully hopefully we can pick up all that as well
0: but yeah and to bring that right back to you know to the clinic I mean, I know from really good research that giving people bisphosphonate reduces their risk of having another fracture compared to not getting the bisphosphonate. And I can share that with patients and say, this is the drug for you. However, if I see someone who's had a DEXA scan and they maybe have an osteopenic value, and in fact, maybe not a very low osteopenic value, and I've said to them, you know, you fractured and actually your bone density is not that bad, and I'm going to give you a drug which functions to increase your bone density further. And the patient with some justification, I think, can say to me, but look, my bone density is not that bad to start off with. What evidence have you got that making that even higher will reduce my risk of having a further fracture when having quite good bone density in the, in, in the first place didn't actually reduce my risk of fracture? And I think that's a, that's a good question. And I think those are often patients who have some problem with the quality of their bone And while bisphosphonate and other treatments like that may still be an important part of their of their management, um, it's always in the back of my mind that I'm giving them more bone material, which is maybe not of great quality.
1: So I can imagine right now there's people hopefully who are listening to this podcast who are shouting at the speaker should I take collagen supplements? That's the question that I'm always getting asked. So I'll put that to you now. Are, are, do collagen supplements work? Is it just a figment of the internet's imagination?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this—it's <laughs> it's almost in—in in future episodes, I think we're—we're we're going to have a have, have a fake news category. Um, it's important to remember that lots of things that you take into your mouth go, in, go into the stomach. They hit the—they hit the, the hydrochloric acid in, in your stomach. And they get taken apart and and a lot of a lot of the stuff doesn't get absorbed some does get absorbed there's no evidence that the body will necessarily take that collagen that you put in the top end and use it to strengthen your bones now it must be said there is evidence that increasing protein in the diet can be of benefit to some patients if you've had a relatively low protein content in your diet and if you take extra protein particularly if you exercise and, and and possibly if you take calcium and vitamin d as well that can be of benefit but it can be of benefit in the sense that it tends to increase your bone mineral density i can't necessarily tell you that taking protein will improve the quality of your bone in any way
1: well there's also a lot more going on there isn't it i can imagine that if somebody is inclined to change their diet to improve their bone health they might also be inclined to exercise more smoke less and drink less so to try and pin down one effect among many must be really hard
0: well absolutely and i think it's something else we will cover in that muscles and bones um muscles and bones are, are similar you always find muscles and bones together they they develop from the same mesenchymal stem cell and therefore, you find things that are good for muscles, for example, exercise are good for bones because exercise increases the, the density of your bone. Things that are bad for bones, for example, taking steroids, steroids are also bad for muscles in that they, they, they cause muscle atrophy. So many things, so for most, uh, most risk factors for low bone density are also risk factors for, for low muscle mass and, and vice versa. Mm <laughs> hmm.
1: So let's get back to the the treatments for a minute because people always have questions about the treatments. And earlier on, you mentioned bisphosphonates, and you described how they work by turning the tap, uh, plugging the bath. So you stop the the loss. Yeah, yeah. Such a good example of that. So you plug the bath, and you allow the bone mineral to increase. How effective are bisphosphonates at reducing somebody's risk of fracture?
0: Uh, The answer to that is you could go through 100 different papers and find 100 different figures. But in general terms, I I say to people, they will reduce your fracture risk by somewhere between 30 to 50 percent across the board, across different age groups and in, in different conditions. That, of course, is a relative reduction. So if you have a very, very high risk of fracturing, then reducing it by 30 percent is really important. If you have a very, very low risk of fracturing, then even reducing it by 50 or 60 or 70 percent isn't actually doesn't make that much clinical difference to the risk of, of further fracture. But in general terms, if your doctor has looked at your DEXA, has calculated a FRAX, and has correctly decided that you should take a bisphosphonate, then the relative risk reduction from taking that is worthwhile. And as I said, somewhere between 30 to 50% across the board in most patients.
1: And how often do people take the treatment? How long should they take the treatment for?
0: Yeah, well, that's another good question. It's it's a slow treatment. It's not something you can take for six months and see an immediate improvement. You have to gradually slow down the activity of of these osteoclast cells and allow the, the osteoblasts to gradually increase bone mineral density. So we really think in blocks of five year treatment, sometimes people say three to five years, but I'd have to be honest and say, I'm not sure if there's any point in taking the treatment for three years. So we think of this in five year blocks of treatment. And if you've taken your bisphosphonate for five years and you haven't had a fracture, and usually if we see a a modest increase in your bone mineral density on a DEXA scan, then for many patients now, we recommend having a holiday from taking that drug. Um, For other people, if they've reached the five year mark and maybe they've had a fracture or their bone mineral density is still quite low, then we recommend that they continue to take it for for a little longer. But now there's generally a ceiling of 10 years because once you reach 10 years on a bisphosphonate, it appears that in general terms, you've got most of the benefit you're going to get from it, but you do run run into greater risk of some relatively rare side effects which do start to increase from about five years onwards.
1: Um, Would you have any advice for anybody listening now who has been diagnosed with osteoporosis via a DEXA scan or been identified as somebody who is at high risk of a fracture through the FRAX questionnaire and has been offered bisphosphonate? What advice would you give those patients?
0: yeah i mean i i would say to them if they have seen a specialist or if you have seen your gp and you've had a proper assessment done and the bisphosphonate has been recommended then for most people i would advise that that you take it because it's it's an effective drug Um, there are tens of thousands of people in the uk today who would have had serious fractures who have not had those fractures because they've taken the bisphosphonate i think the two biggest issues that come up in terms of bisphosphonates are people take them for a period of time and then stop taking them. So they have a painful fracture and they're worried about having a further fracture and they maybe have a DEXA scan done and and they're told they have osteoporosis and they faithfully take that tablet for six months or nine months or a year. But after 18 months or two years, the pain of the fracture has gone away. They have other things to worry about. And often you find the, the compliance with the medication drops off. And there's this figure that we often hear that after one year, Uh, well under 50% of people are still taking their bisphosphonate who are prescribed it. And in fact, people often quote figures as low as as 30 or 33% of people continue to take their bisphosphonate in the long term. Now, for some people, that's because of, of side effects. But for many, it's just because they haven't bothered getting the repeat prescription. And unfortunately, this is a drug you need to take. It's a commitment in the longer term to get the benefit from it. And those figures that I've quoted about reducing the risk of fracture, those come from research studies where people take their drug for the full length of time. I suppose the other thing I would say to people is that the one issue that stops people taking the drug is concern about side effects and usually concern about two rare side effects, one called osteonecrosis of the jaw or ONJ and another called atypical femoral fracture. It must be said that the risk of both those things is substantially less than the risk of you having another fracture in almost all cases, or indeed you wouldn't have been prescribed the drug. A typical femoral fracture is, is an unusual type of fracture that occurs at the top of the leg. And it's usually associated with having been on one of those treatments for a very, very long time, certainly more than five years. And sometimes we would have found in the past people, more than 10 years. My analogy about the bath is useful in that instance in that it's important to block up the plug hole. But if you let the bath run for a very long time, eventually the water starts to to, to to spill over and you do have to take the plug out and let it run out a bit. It seems that inhibiting those osteoclast cells from working is good to strengthen your bone initially, but if you inhibit those cells for a very, very long time then you stop them doing some of the important repair work that they have to do and you run the risk of some of these rather unusual sudden fractures. Um, But the risk of that it must be said is, is, is low and it's not something if you've been properly assessed the risk of you having what you would call a normal fragility fracture will be much higher than one of these rare fractures but it's important once you get to five or six or seven years that you assess the need to keep going. The other risk I mentioned, the osteonecrosis of the jaw, is, is a condition in which you get uh, inflammation and infection down in, in the root of a tooth. Um, it is very rare. It is associated with having taken bisphosphonates for a long time. And it tends to occur mainly in people who have very bad dentition, who have a previous history of of, uh, of Uh, abscesses or dry sockets or other major dental problems to start off with. It's more common in smokers and more common in people who've had treatment for for mouth cancer or cancer around, around the skull. We recommend people get a checkup with the dentist regularly, as we all should do. If you haven't had a check with your dentist for six months before starting a bisphosphonate, you should do that just to make sure things are okay with the teeth. But otherwise, the risk of that happening is still relatively very rare. And it's not something I would let people, I would let uh, interfere with the decision to start a bisphosphonate in most cases. That's
1: really you know, lovely description of the treatment there. And it was interesting how you described the side effects. I've never really heard of uh, bisphosphonate being prescri- being described as a commitment before. But that's really interesting because it does take a, a long time for the treatment to work. What, what kind of discussions do you have with your patients when you begin prescribing them the bisphosphonate? And do you have any follow up or discussions with the patients further down the line?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's not unusual and it's disappointing to find someone who has been prescribed a bisphosphonate, but who has quite simply been prescribed the drug. They've had a phone call from the GP receptionist to say there's a new drug here for you. There's little explanation as to why you're being prescribed it. There's little explanation as to how you take it because it's important that a bisphosphonate is taken on an empty stomach first thing in the morning with a glass of water not not with milk or tea or any food and that about half an hour is left before you eat anything so it is a commitment we talk about lifestyle changes it's almost a lifestyle change and that you need to commit to that uh, in the long term but it's something we get certainly in in secondary care We hopefully have a little more time to spend to talk to patients and actually maybe I shouldn't say about secondary care because that sounds as if I'm criticizing primary care. I'll go back and say I think the key here is to spend a little time explaining to patients. So, for example, the way I explained about bone building cells and bone removing cells, about the plug in the bath and how taking this tablet plugs up the bath. And let your bones gradually become stronger if you explain to a patient that's how it works patients will buy into that and they will know why they're taking it if by contrast a patient simply receives a phone call from a gp receptionist to say there's a new tablet here for your bones without any explanation then they may take it for a period of time thinking it will help the pain in my bones they may take it until they next see the orthopedic surgeon who says your fracture's healed you can now go And they won't actually buy into that longer term commitment, knowing that their bones will be gradually getting more dense and stronger and less likely to fracture over a long period of time. There is good evidence that a call from a nurse even at six months or 12 months to check how you're getting on makes a difference. It's the sort of thing which overall isn't that expensive but it's sometimes overlooked and it's sometimes difficult to organize. So I would say if you ask me to pick one thing about how we manage osteoporosis that we could improve upon, it's probably that follow up at four months, six months, 12 months, just to check the patient is is still taking the tablet because in in financial terms, that's a lot cheaper than someone in two or three years having a hip fracture or shoulder fracture or a spinal fracture and ending up back in hospital. It's that feeling too that we haven't forgotten about the patient. There are some conditions where people have to come to the hospital regularly and they face-to-face contact with doctors and nurses on a regular basis. Often with osteoporosis, we're starting a treatment and we're saying this is a treatment that, that goes on for three to five years or longer. And I think that regular contact, just to check that you're doing okay, is really important now that can be done by pharmacists can be done by nurses it can be done by a whole range of people it certainly doesn't have to be done by the doctor and going forward that's something that is a change in the way we're thinking about things and it's something that 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 we encourage very much at a local level that we work as a team now and that if the community pharmacist knows that a patient has stopped picking up their prescription then i want to hear about that because that is knowledge that is out there and if then a phone call from my nurse to that patient to say you've stopped picking up your prescription is there a problem then that can get the ship back on an even keel again and and the treatment goes forward and five years down the line the patient hasn't suffered a fracture what we don't want is the patient giving up the medication the local pharmacist knowing that they've stopped picking it up the gp record showing that they're not picking it up but no communication there between all those groups and the patient then turning up next year with with a hip fracture which which is a disaster.
1: So I suppose that's something that we haven't really picked up on very much yet is what actually are the consequences of a fracture. So what are the what are the common fractures and what happens to somebody when they do fracture?
0: Well, the immediate, as someone who has suffered a number of fractures myself, the immediate consequence, of course, is the pain of a fracture. But we tend to think, we tend to think in the longer term of, I suppose, the, the time it takes up in hospital and the the cost of being in hospital. And then also, of course, the mortality associated with fractures. And people sometimes don't realize this, that that fractures, particularly major fractures, are associated with significant mortality. So the figures uh, which which are relevant really across the Western world, and I don't think have changed much in the last 20 years, are that around 20 percent of people are dead within one year of suffering a hip fracture. And for some groups of people, like men, for example, that rises to 25 percent or more. So if you consider a hip fracture as a condition that has a 25 percent one year mortality, that immediately makes it a much more fatal condition than most types of cancers nowadays and that most forms of myocardial infarction or stroke or other serious conditions. It must be said as well that even fractures of the vertebrae and the spine are associated with significantly increased risks of mortality. So really all types of fracture are, are not good for you and make it more likely that you will or sorry I should say all types of fragility fracture are not good for you and can be shown to increase your risk of of mortality at the end of the year?
1: One of the things I would really love to do is raise people's awareness about bone fragility. And it was interesting there, what you said about the mortality and how severe the disease is, even in comparison to some cancers. There does seem to be a general attitude that bone fragility is something that occurs to everyone as we age, particularly postmenopausal women, loss of bone and a fracture is inevitable and that there's nothing really that we can do about it. And it would be really wonderful if we could change that perception because there are effective treatments, there are diagnostics. I guess there's always room for improvement in the treatments. If we could get from 50% reduction to 100% reduction in the risk, that would be wonderful. If we could identify more people or identify them early and get them on treatments like calcium and vitamin D, get them exercising, stopping smoking, that would be wonderful. And I really hope that through this podcast, we can reach out to people and try and raise the profile of fragility. And get a general discussion going about what we can do about it, how it's not inevitable. And if we can put more money and more research time in to
0: things like bone quality, we, and we you can know solve this. When, when you talk about, about preventing this from happening, if there was one age group I would concentrate on to prevent osteoporotic fractures in 75-year-olds, it's it's teenagers and people in in their 20s, it's achieving peak bone mass because the higher peak bone mass you get the further you have to fall if you want to put it like that when you get older and you start to lose to lose bone so while it's really important to treat people who already have osteoporosis in their 60s and 70s if we could prevent osteoporosis developing by getting people as high bone mass as they could get when they're 25 then that would actually save us so much money and time and effort and disease Later, later in life.
1: So, so bone fragility then is not just a fra- factor of aging, but it's also a factor of development. And that if we could encourage better and healthier development, people would have a lot further to fall as they age before they suffer a fracture.
0: I think that's absolutely true. I mean, you were saying, is this just an aging condition? There's no doubt about it. Once you get to your 90s, you tend to have lower bone mineral density, and you're more likely to fracture but that does not mean that there's lots and lots of people between the age of of 40 and 90, let's say, that we could do so much to improve their bone mineral density, so much to reduce their risk of recurrent fractures.
1: So I feel this is a a really positive note to end the first episode on. And I hope that in the future episodes of the podcast, we're gonna be able to explore some of those ideas. What, What we can do to improve people's development, what we can do to slow aging, how we can encourage people to have healthier and longer bone lives. And I'm really excited about finding out.
0: Yeah, we've touched on so many things right from new research at the cellular level, things you're doing to look at elasticity and quality of bone, right down to how we could get community pharmacists to let GPs know if the patient's not picking up their prescription and everything in between to, to improve bone and reduce, reduce the risk of fractures. Do You know, the, the holy grail, if I can put it like that, of osteoporosis treatment is seeing a patient who's fractured their hip today. And knowing that if I had seen them last week, I would have a test that would have shown me that they were almost certain to fracture their hip today. And also have a treatment that I know if I'd given it to them last week would almost certainly have prevented them from fracturing their hip today. And those are the two the two sides of the coin being really good at spotting who's going to fracture. And we're well away from that now and having really effective treatment that prevents that fracture. And if we can move those two things forward, then we'll be a lot closer to curing osteoporosis
1: fantastic so that gives us a good scaffold going forward we know what we're looking for
0: excellent i'll see you next time on the next episode of bone up bone up i love that title (laughs) thanks everyone
1: for listening we hope you enjoyed it and we hope you come and tune in for future episodes where we'll unpack some of these uh concepts a bit more And delve deeper into
0: the world of bone fragility. Thank you.